Divided by Mass podcast brought to you by ForceDividedByMass.com. This is episode one, and we will be joined by a special guest, Steve Palladino, who is currently the head coach of the Palladino Power Project. And without further ado, let's uh, welcome Steve. Hey, Steve, how are you doing? Uh, if you could start off by just giving us a little bit of history with your involvement in the sport and coaching, that'd be great. Thanks. Well, first of all, thank you for um, for asking me on your podcast, and uh, it's a pleasure. Um, uh, my background, uh, well, I have a background in uh, running uh, as a competitor uh, and also as a coach in my later years. And then also in cycling in the, the early days of, of uh, power. And uh, then also a medical background as well. That was my primary profession until I retired in 2016. So um, basically I ran, um, I ran in uh, middle school, high school, college, and had a little uh, short post-collegiate career where, where I ran club and also was sponsored by Adidas. Um, and my best result out of that running career was a 216 marathon in the 1979 Boston Marathon, wow. which qual- qualified me for Olympic trials. But uh, then I got injured like two weeks before Olympic trials. It was uh, it was sort of sad. But in any case, uh, then uh, then I went into medical school. So. Uh, the running competitive running had to take a back seat. Um, and then finally I, I started getting back into competitive running just uh, as I was uh, becoming master's runner. And um, I had not a bad master's career. I ran a 245. Um, I think it was 245 at, at, at Chicago in you know, two, early two thousands. Um, and, uh, started getting injured in my master's years. So I, I turned to cycling and, and just so happened to be that, uh, that was, you know, 2002, 2003 is when I adopted power. Power was uh, new at that point in time. And I was an early adopter. And so I got to learn a lot about power from, from, uh, the people are, they're really, uh, really developing power for cycling in those days, the Andy Coggin and, and a bunch of others on the old um, uh, Topic A and wattage forums. So I got to learn a lot about power and and, uh, apply power. Um, And uh, eventually I had the uh, the opportunity to put it all together when Stride came out with uh, the first power meter in uh, either late 2015 or early 2016 which sort of coincided with my retirement. So I was able to start coaching running again and incorporate what I've learned with power from the cycling side um, and also incorporate a lot of what I I, uh, know from the medicine side, my background in physiology, et cetera. Um, So I was able to incorporate a lot of these things that that were part of my life uh, as I was growing and into uh, my my coaching career, so it's been been a blast. Oh, that's great. Um, could you speak a little bit about your medical career and give us some background on that? That'd be great. 
Well, I, uh, I, my training was as a podiatrist and, uh, my, my career was, you know, initially in private practice. And then I started working for, uh, an HMO out here in California, Kaiser. And, uh, uh, did a lot of things in there. I was, I, uh, my Kaiser specialty was was uh, primarily foot and ankle surgery, although I had a you know a nice little sports medicine practice within Kaiser, um, and then I did you know a lot of things. I was president of the American Board of Podiatric Surgery, which is now American Board of Foot and Ankle Surgery. Uh, so yeah, I had to do uh, I I got to do a lot of things in in uh, uh, podiatry and foot and ankle. Had about a thirty plus year career doing that. So I'm able to, to take a lot of what I know in terms of lower extremity biomechanics, lower extremity medicine, uh, uh, physiology uh, that I learned, and uh, apply it to um, coaching and dealing with injuries or preventing injuries, et cetera. Oh, just as a side note, my father was uh, also a podiatrist. Oh, wow. No kidding. So... Just before we go any further, can you give a little bit of background on power and how it works so the listeners can get a better uh, feel for it? Great. Yeah. So um, the way I like to look at it is is power is the um, best representation of your effort. Um, another way of looking at it is uh, power is also the best representation of what's going on metabolically to produce your movement, to produce um, that power and movement that you have or that effort level. So uh, power is, think of it as a, uh, a, a representative of what's going on metabolically. And a good example of that is how well uh, power and particular stride uh, correlates with VO2. Now, naturally, if you're you're you know doing a more metabolically demanding in, uh, intensity, you're going to be uh, utilizing more oxygen. And what we see in in multiple um, different studies uh, is that that uh, as with with a running power meter such as Stride, as power goes up. VO2 utilization goes up, so they correlate very well. So power is a, a good representation of what's going on metabolically, but more important, at the most basic level, it's it's probably the best representation of your effort level. It's better than pace and better than heart rate. Um, I'll give you an example. For pace, if you start running uphill, you're putting out a lot more effort, but your pace isn't showing that, and your pace is going down as you're going uphill. Uh, with power, it goes up. Uh, another example for heart rate. Um, when you, If you're doing intervals uh, and you start running uh, a certain intensity, your power immediately demonstrates that intensity that you're running at. Your heart rate is going to lag. It's going to take a while before your heart rate uh, catches up. So you know, heart rate is a trailing indicator of your effort level slash metabolic demand. Um, so in in essence, power um, is a, you know a good representation of effort, metabolic demand, and uh, clearly in my mind is superior to um, 
training by pace or heart rate. Yeah, I mean, I would agree as well. So just for the listeners, um, maybe address the concept of watts and say what power looks like just in case someone isn't aware of it. Okay, so um, watts is, is just a, uh, a measure of uh, work uh, per unit of time. And um, it's, it's, it's physics, basically. So um, uh, watts is power. It's a, it's, it's a uh, representation of, of power. So uh, essentially, um, if your uh, power is higher, your, your effort level is higher, you're going to be showing a greater uh, amount of watts, a greater number of watts um, uh, while you're running. So let's say you're, you're running, and most people know pace, so let's say you're running at, um, at eight minutes per mile pace, and you sub- suddenly accelerate to, um, uh, uh, let's say, six minute per mile pace. Uh, your your power is going to go up. You're going to see that uh, reflected. So let's say it 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 um, and I'm just throwing numbers out here. Don't hold me to the, <laughs> how exact they are. But um, let's say you're at, at eight minute pace. You're running at 250 watts, and suddenly you accelerate to a six minute pace. You might see power on your watch. Um, uh, it jump up to maybe 300 watts, and uh, you know that's indicating that you're at a higher effort level. Or let's say you're on a hill and you're running at 250 watts on the flat, which is eight minute pace. Suddenly hit this hill and you uh, try to hold the same pace, which means you have to get, have a much higher effort level. So you you might see it, the power jump up to 300 watts on that hill because you're at a higher effort level, but your pace is not. Your pace is is sort of dropping. So um, there's a good representation uh, or a good example of of uh, watts and so forth. I hope that makes that make sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Let's take a look at you know, what power, what the process of training with power looks like. You know, if you get an athlete, you know, let's say, you know, someone wants to train for a half marathon, you know, what's your process for um, assessing the athlete and designing a training plan and then progressing them through the training cycle? Okay, cool. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to uh, start as uh with as simple an explanation as possible. And if you want to, you know, uh, drill down a little bit, then, you know, follow up. Um, So basically, uh, after somebody, uh, let's say they get a power meter and they've been using it for, you know, a few weeks or a few months, just to sort of see how it works. You know, like I was just saying, see how it works when you get to a hill and you're trying to hold the same power um, or hold the same effort level. See how it works. After you're done with that, um, and you want to say, okay, hey, I want to train with this thing, um, you want to get a um, a uh, foundation. You want to get a mark from which you can base your training. And for that, we typically use uh, what's called functional threshold power, which is a long-established 
concept in cycling. It's new in, in running, of course. Um, or critical power. Critical power is another, you know, it's critical power is, was uh, defined long ago before there's even cycling power. Um, and and for those listeners that know a little bit about functional threshold power and a little bit about critical power, um, I use them interchangeably. Functionally, they're interchangeable for our purposes. We can get into the nitty gritty, but we're not. Uh, they're functionally interchangeable, functional threshold power and critical power. Let me explain that, uh, that concept. So um, we, most of the listeners uh, know about things like lactate threshold um, or what was called anaerobic threshold, um, or they may, may even know the term maximal lactate steady state. These are physiologic uh, assessments uh, that define a sort of a steady state where you're you're at you're at sort of the maximal level that you could sustain completely aerobically or predominantly aerobically, um, and if you go over that level of effort, you now start uh, you know call, start calling on more anaerobic energy production. So this is sort of like your steady state uh, power that you can hold for. For most runners, it can be from anywhere from 30 minutes to even up to 70 minutes in elite runners. Um, so, and, th and this is a period, if we're, if we're doing lactate testing, we're during this, this uh, if you're holding this particular effort level or this power, um, you're gonna see that lactate, your serum lactate is staying about the same. It's not really shooting up off into the uh, the stratosphere. Uh, so that's functional threshold power and critical power in a nutshell. They represent that lactate threshold, maximal lactate uh, steady state ballpark. And um, we use it in running as a, as a primary measure of uh, uh, a reference point, I should say, a primary reference point for basing training because from 5K to marathon, they are executed by most runners at somewhere between uh, plus or minus 10% of threshold power. So threshold power sort of smack dab in the middle of that and, and uh, gives you a good reference point for basin training. Um, so what is that? Did you want to break in there? Yeah, I just wanted to clarify for the listener the definition of functional threshold power uh, so we can all be on the same page. Excellent. So would you say that functional threshold power is the maximum amount of power you can sustain during maximal lactate steady state? It's pretty close. It's pretty close. I mean, you're, you're talking about two, um, two different metrics that are derived from different protocols, and the protocols can cause little minor changes, but conceptually, Yes, they're they're very similar uh, physiologic states. Okay, um, so 
a runner comes to power, they get the power meter, and then you establish your functional threshold power as a basis to base your training on. That's what you're indicating, right? Right. Predominantly, yes. Okay. There's, there's nuances, but we're, we're to, to keep it simple, yes, we base our training off of that. Okay. And so where what's the next step in that process? Before I get into that, I'm going to just add one addendum to what I said. Um, a lot of people will refer to um, critical power or uh, functional threshold power as the, uh, the power um, that you can uh, hold for one hour. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's not the case. Um, neither one is defined that way. Uh, it, you know, for most people, it's, it's going to be close. But like I said earlier, 30 minutes to, to 70 minutes for, for, for um, functional threshold power or critical power is the uh, time to exhaustion. Right. So that it, basically how much power you can hold while your lactate doesn't exceed your threshold, essentially. Yeah, yeah that's probably the better uh, definition. Right. And that time is going to vary depending on the athlete and your training, et cetera. Exactly. No, you're, you're nailing it. Okay. So, uh, so let's go into the training part. Uh, okay. So, um, so now we have this number. We we've, we've done. Uh, there's various ways of finding that number. Uh, per, usually, for for the athletes that I work with, we're using a a, 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 a critical power test, which involves a short duration maximal effort and a long duration maximal effort. And uh, we can arrive from a formula to, uh, what the critical power is for that runner. And remember that we're using it interchangeable with functional threshold power. Other ways of determining it are from uh, racing or, or a, a time trial event um, where you can take the power and through another formula, you can figure out what the person's critical power or functional threshold power are. And then uh, a, a yet another way would be uh, there's various automated uh, systems. Stride has one. Uh, WKO was the originator of it from Dr. Coggins' work. Um, and uh, Golden Cheetah has it. And there's a number of platforms that now uh, have an automated way using your running database to, to uh, estimate your functional threshold power or critical power. So there's a number of ways of coming up with that number. I usually start with a critical power test uh, because it's quick. Um, you're done in one day and you have your reference point. You don't have to have a whole ton of data. You don't have to wait until race day. Um, so once I have that number, now I can start prescribing as a percentage of that uh, functional threshold power or critical power. Uh, for example, um, uh, most people are familiar with, with zones like heart rate zones and so yeah. forth. Um, and you could do the same thing with power. And, and I always say zones are for descriptive purposes. It allows us to describe what's going on at each zone more so than prescriptive, um, meaning if I prescribe, um, uh, say, six times one mile or, or six times five minutes um, at zone four, 
um, that's a big zone where it, it's not very specific. I like to be more specific in my actual prescription. But um, zones are still useful in describing. For example, uh, in running, zone one is typically about 80% of functional threshold power or critical power and below. It's 80% or less. Um, some, some of the listeners, the savvy listeners, might be familiar with, with the first lactate threshold or what's also called aerobic threshold, which is um, if, you're, if you also are into 80-20 training or, or Steven Seiler's work, um, it, that would be their zone one. That's, that is easy aerobic running. Um, below, typically, it's below 80%. The first lactate threshold may be at 77% for one runner or 75% for another runner or 80% for another runner. But usually if you're 80% or below, you're doing easy aerobic running. Um, that's where you should be running if you're doing a recovery run. Um, that's um, where you should do your regular um, aerobic runs, you know, uh, like a midweek uh, eight miler um, um, or seven miler, six miler, what have you, hour long run, um, that would be done typically in zone one. Um, so there, that's an example of using power to prescribe uh, easy runs. Now, uh, should I go into some more higher intensity prescriptions? Well, let's take one step back. Uh, for the listener so they can get an understanding of zones as they relate to power and maybe you can go over how you look at zones. I know you have your own zone system that differs slightly from the stride system and other people's systems so maybe you can just address how you're looking at power and zones and how you're applying them to your athletes. Okay um, well the uh... Uh, off the top of my head, I, I'm not going to – don't hold me to exact percentages. I don't really follow stride zones. And even my zones, I, like I said, I don't prescribe off of my zones, but I, I, do, I can uh, use them for descriptive purposes. So zone one is easy aerobic. It's generally below the, the aerobic threshold of the first lactate threshold or uh, the first ventilation threshold if you're really getting into the physiology side. It's easy aerobic running. So essentially LT1. Yeah, exactly. Um, zone two is, uh, is like a moderate, uh, you're getting into moderate intensity. Um, and for me, um, it's typically between 80% and 88%. Um, and, uh, the reason 88% is the upper, uh, limit of that is because that's where for most runners, that is the, the, the bottom of marathon power. Um, so you, you talk about marathon pace training. Uh, that's the, that's the, the bottom, the, the easiest part of, uh, marathon power intensity. So in between we have 80 to 88%. And um, uh, that's an area that is typically, it, it's a little bit 
too hard to recover from and too easy to create any reasonable training stimulus for even the marathon. Um, uh, you are you are burning some glycogen when you're running there, so there are some advantages to doing long runs in the lower part of zone two. But in general, um, you want to stay out of zone two. And it's curious if you take runners and they're they're not following a structured training plan and they're not following um, uh, 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 these these uh, limitations that I'm talking about they're going to gravitate to the middle and this is common a lot of a lot of uh people that are knowledgeable in running and in physiology will talk about this you tend if you're doing the tend to do the same thing day in day out and it tends tends to be you get too tired to go really hard and you want to you want want to feel like you're doing something and so a lot of runners if left to their own devices they end up somewhere in the 84 to 86%, 87% range of their functional threshold power or critical power. If you just let them run and just say, hey, go out and run every day, they're going to end up in that, that, that area that is a little bit too hard to really uh, recover from and really uh, gain the, the big-time aerobic benefits, but a little bit too easy to get the stimulus that you need for the the higher intensity things, the, the lactate threshold and, and higher type of intensities. So um, zone two is is generally uh, a, a stay away from zone except for, it, it, as I apply it in my training, I usually will have runners hover in the low end of zone two in their long runs to work the glycogen depletion and then towards the end of run i'm usually having them run marathon power or other higher intensity work on more uh glycogen depleted uh muscles uh so there's sort of a method to the madness in having somebody go into the low end of zone two um purposely otherwise yeah you want to stay away from that that zone for the most part um the next zone uh, up, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna use my zones. I, 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 the the next zone is uh, zone three, which which runs all the way from 88% to uh, 101%, which is you know your essentially your threshold, your functional threshold power, your critical power, and that is a, a range where where if you're looking at it from a runner's perspective. That's a range that covers from marathon power at the low end, 80, you know, 88 to 90% for a lot of runners, um, marathon power at the low end, and in the middle of that zone is half marathon power, 94 to 96% for a lot of runners, and at the upper end is 10K power. Most runners do 10Ks at right, right around uh, functional threshold power to maybe even uh, up to 102%, but most runners are 100 to 101%. So here we have a real prime training uh, zone. I call it zone three, from 88% to 101%, which which encompasses three different uh, race uh, uh, distances in terms of the power range. 
Um, above 101% up to uh, about 106, 107%, 108%, I can't remember exactly. Um, that I call that zone four. And basically in that area, you're at higher intensity than 10K power. And you're at the, the, the top end of that zone is where you start getting into 5K power. Um, so that zone is straddled by 10K and 5K is that zone four. So you're higher intensity. And actually, if you're in, uh, if you follow the, the uh, polarized training concepts of 80-20 or Steven Seiler's work, that zone four is where you actually start counting the higher intensity, the 20 in the 80-20 concept. Um, uh, the next zone up, zone five, is really where your uh, VO2 max is uh, max, the, the best stimulus for VO2 max. Um, and it encompasses, it's straddled by 5K at the lower end, 5K power, which is around 106, 108%, all the way up to about, I think I have it 116%. Which which is which is a 1500 mile 1600 um, power for most runners. So we we now are straddling an area where if you're if you're training in that zone sufficiently of sufficient duration, you're really getting a good VO2 max stimulus. And then uh, above that is is where you're really getting into anaerobic stimulus, and that's you know, up above 116, 118, 119%. It's, you're getting, when you're running there, you're getting a more of an anaerobic stimulus. And, uh, and that goes up to, I forget what I have it up to, about 100 and, 128, 130, I can't remember. Um, and that's, that's your anaerobic stimulus. Above that is, is, that's just max. Max is max. You're running as hard as you can. So, so there's a nutshell of, of, of how I like to look at zones. I like to look at zones not only in terms of, of power as a percentage of FTP or CP, critical power, but also as it relates to common running racing distances. Okay. And with your clients that you're coaching – I mean, are you talking about zones? Or are you talking about percentages in your prescriptions? I, I, well, I, it's percentages, but um, for for one-on-one -on -one clients, uh, I I do all the math for them. So, I, you know, I, I in my mind, I I know what percentage I want them to be running at, but I when I translate it, I translate it based on their threshold power to a a specific uh, power target. Okay. Uh, in, in the training plans that I that I sell, it's it's based on percentage. Um, so the the user just uses whatever their their functional threshold power, critical power is, and they just do the math to to convert it over. Right. Okay. And do you have? Is there anything else you want to add to that? It seems like you covered it. No, I think that that covers all those ranges uh, uh, pretty well. Yeah. So how 
do you set your training goals for your athletes and what types of metrics do you use to validate their progress along the way as they move through a training program? That's a good question. Well, training goals um, uh, are derived from, you know, what the racing goals are. So I, I don't, I don't dictate the goals to the athlete. Uh, for the most part, I, I confer with the athlete to shape those goals. So there's some athletes that will, um, they'll, they'll say, uh, this is my, my goal for, uh, this 10 K is X, Y, Z. Um, or, you know, we're going to train for an A race in three months. And my goal is X, Y, Z. And I'll go, well, um, okay. That is about, uh, a 3% improvement. I think that's doable. Let's go for it. Or sometimes I'll go, Oh, that's a, uh, that, you know, that's a 10% improvement o over your, uh, your existing 10 K PR. And then I'll, you know, is it existing 10 K PR soft PR, or is it a pretty good one in which a 10% jump in three months is, is quite a bit. And then I'll counsel the runner. Hey, we, we, let's reconsider this. Um, so we do uh, work on goals, um, but uh, the other part of that is that um, your your body's going to respond at a certain rate over a certain period of time, and the improvement is going to be what the body does in terms of responding to training, and staying consistent, staying uninjured, staying um, you know healthy, so you don't miss training time, and um, and what will be what will be i mean that's that's another you know philosophy i have is you if you train appropriately and we'll get to those what what um what key performance indicators are am i looking at if we if we're if we're training appropriately to those uh key performance indicators then we should come out on the other side with with a substantial improvement uh, so what key performance indicators do I watch? Do I monitor? I mean, there's a lot of them and, and I'm not, I don't want to, you know, drag down the, the podcast with listing, uh, you know, 15, 20 different metrics, but, um, I want to, uh, look at functional threshold power. I'd like to see that grow over the training period. So if it's a three three week block or a month block or, or, or uh, a three month block, I'd like to see functional threshold power grow. grow. It, um, I should also say, as I get into these, it depends on what your, your, your uh, race goals are. Someone training for a marathon, it's going to be a different set of, of uh, key performance indicators I'm looking for, uh, as opposed to someone's training for a 1600 meter race or a 5k race. So, um, but FTP is one that I watch in all of them. Um, uh, six minute power, uh, six minute power is a, a good one to watch. It's, it's a surrogate of, of, uh, VO2 power at VO2 max. The time to exhaustion at VO2 max, um, is, uh, somewhere between four minutes and eight minutes. So, um, six minutes is, is a you know, reasonable surrogate for power at VO2 max. And 
I'd like to see that improve, particularly for you know 5K, 10K racers, 1500 meter racers. I'd like to see that improve. So we follow that. Um, a couple of other ones uh, without going into the whole list. I'd like to see um, one that, that's called chronic training load. Chronic training load is, uh, well, most runners track, um, most run runners track their training load by mileage. How many miles per week are they getting? Um, a chronic training load is a metric that includes both duration and intensity relative to the functional threshold power. So um, it, it, it's, it's a little bit better, I think, than just following mileage in this, this metric called chronic training load. And I like to see it progress at a healthy rate. I don't want it to ramp too much because that's a good indicator of, uh, of, of advancing uh, training load too much and getting into illness and injury. So I look at the ramp of that chronic training load. I want to see it progressing, but I want to see it progress at a reasonable rate that's healthy for the runners. And I can do that. Um, uh, uh, similarly, I also follow what's called intensity load. I, I look at the amount, of the, uh, the amount of training that's being done over 95% of, of uh, threshold power and also the amount of training that's being done over 103% of threshold power, both of those. And I follow those similar to chronic training load to see that I'm progressing intensity gradually at a healthy rate for those runners. So there, there in a nutshell, there's, there's four things, but you know, also keep in mind um, that, uh, and, and it goes, it, it ties back to your original question of how we, do we incorporate power into training? We test, establish functional threshold power, we train based on that number, then we test or race to get that number again, and then we can train off that new number. So it's, it's a cycle of test, train, test, where I'm using test in a broad definition that also includes racing or time trials. Test, race, or test, train, test, train, et cetera, et cetera. And if your threshold power is growing, then gradually your intensities are growing, your absolute watts or absolute power is growing as as you go so, uh, can i ask you a question at that point oh absolutely um so how frequently do you test in your training cycle um it, it, i'm gonna the 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 first way i'm going to answer that is what would be a reasonable period of training before you actually see a, a significant, significant measurable improvement in your fitness um, or your threshold. Um, and, you know, for, for most people, it's right around six weeks. Uh, could be a little less, a little bit more, depending on the type of training that's going on. But uh, in terms of, of uh, conceptual answer, about every six weeks. In terms of practical answer, um, it, it, it for my one-on-one -on -one coaching clients, it 
depends. You know, there may be a race that, that's seven weeks away and we, we put off retesting until we get to that race and we can use that race data to generate a new threshold power uh, figure. Um, so uh, life intervenes and uh, it's not always as smooth as every six weeks, but conceptually it's about every six weeks. What and and in terms of the ramp with this with a chronic training load, what's your ideal sort of ramp rate? And can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah. So, um, uh, chronic training load is based on this uh, metric called training stress score, where Stride has a, a, a is just they have running stress score. But essentially, these stress scores are uh, determined based on both duration and intensity relative to functional threshold power. So um, ideally, roughly one hour at your threshold power um, is going to generate you about 100 training stress score points. All right. So now let's put that daily number of whatever your training training stress is we're going to put that into a model that uses a exponentially weighted uh, moving average um, over a uh, a uh, period of roughly six weeks um, and that number that's generated is your chronic training load and it's so it's 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 um, reported in training stress score per week. All right. So uh, on average, or training stress per, score per day per per week. Um, the uh, ramp rate that I like to see is that they're not progressing this by more than. Oh, well, I start getting worried when they're over five mm -hmm. training training stress score per week. And definitely when they get to seven, I'm, I'm pulling them back. I'm actually saying, hey, we're going to do a rest day. We're doing, uh, we're cutting you down. We're going to do a couple of easy days and not throw any longer runs in. Um, and of course, we want to see it above zero because if you're not above, you're not ramping above zero, you're, you're, you're not progressing your training. We want to see a ramp rate of, of less than zero when we taper, right? Because we want to we want to be well rested, so we want the ramp rate to fall below zero uh, for a couple of days when we're peaking or r racing in an A race. Um, but if if we're training, we're in a training block. We want to see that ramp rate somewhere uh, above zero, and I start getting nervous above five. Um, so in that range, most runners do very well right around two to three uh, training stress score per day per week uh, progression. Okay. Um, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, I use the same metrics in my own training. So w uh, a question I had in regards to training stress score and the ramp rate, what happens when if you have an injured runner, do you, you know, prescribe cross training? And if so, 
do how does that affect their ramp rate and their TSS? Um, okay, so I uh, it depends on the injury, the severity of the injury or the illness, um, um, whether I prescribe cross training. Um, and also the nature as well, what what works best with that particular injury. So, you know, I have some runners that have access to, to Alter G. And, you know, that they've you know, they get tendonitis and they're on the Alter G. I have other runners that don't have access and they might be on, on a, a stationary bike. Um and some runners they have a lower extremity injury that precludes even a stationary bike. And I might have them do some upper extremity training. Um, uh, you know, if it's a unilateral injury, I uh, you could train the opposite leg. That that there's some good research that shows that if one leg is is injured um, and you do uh, no training, if the the uh, the change in the muscle is going in that injured leg is going to be much more a rapid decline than if you continue training the uninjured leg. So you get on a bike and you have uh, someone cycling uh, single-legged. Um, and uh, and I, I, I saw Chris Froome doing this on a video just the other day. And I'm sure besides getting a little cardiovascular benefit, they're, they're, they're specifically going after that, that contralateral uh, uh, training effect. So the bottom line, get back to your question after that tangent, and I apologize. Um, uh, in uh, some cases, I I don't add. I'm not going to add training stress points for say weightlifting or plyometrics or other things. They're just you know it's non-specific. Um, for some runners that are on the bike, I I um, will give them a training stress score um, that is is much less than what they would get if it was purely bicycle training stress score because the crossover effect, the spe specificity of cycling to running is less. So um, I give them a reduced training stress points um, uh, to allow my accounting of their chronic training load to be a little bit more accurate. That makes sense. That's that's a good answer. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I do something similar, so that's why I was asking. What? So, what's your view on? You know, do you, do you tell clients to use a power meter for racing, or is it purely for training? Oh, uh, the race race using it for racing is gold. Of course, yeah, I, I'm definitely wanting them to use it for racing, and um, that is, um, you know, that information is gold because number one, we can use the the power data to estimate their functional threshold power or critical power, and some people just perform so much better in a race than than with a uh, say a critical power test or a time trial that you get a better read on their um, functional threshold power with a race. So that's number one, why I want that data. <clears throat> but number two is we can analyze 
the the race performance, the execution of the race. We could look for things that they did in the race that we could approve upon next time. So no, it, it's I not only want the race data, I want the warm up data. I you know the, I I want all of that. Um, it's it is that's very very valuable information um, for uh, subsequently then uh, deriving a training plan. I agree with that. I guess my, the question that I'm getting at, I, I, I 100% agree with, um, you know, capturing the, the race data. I'm just wondering what your opinion is on, you know, the the athlete, you you know, using like the the power number, try not to exceed a power number during a race. Ah, yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. No, that's, both are both are really valid. Yeah. So um, the uh, I I think the power data is very valuable, particularly for your um, your age group runner, um, it, because most runners um, are going to uh, they're going to be a little over exuberant. Uh, in their expectations of themselves and what pace they might be able to hold, where uh, with power, based on your functional threshold power, your critical power, or from prior race power, we can take that and get a pretty good estimate of what you your body can hold on that given day for that duration that you're going to be running. Um, you know, think about it. Your body can only do so much. And if we have a good reading on how much that is, then we can give someone a race power target and say, hey, try not to go over this. Um, and if you if you stay at or just under it, then you probably are going to get through this race at your maximum capacity. If you go over it, you might be tickling um, the possibility of a crash and burn near the end, or you know, uh, for example, I can't. Some people just uh, they have a you know a big bounce or a one two percent bounce in a race where they get more power than what I'm expecting. But just the same, I'll say, for example, using a marathon, I'll say, you're. I want you to stay at or just under this power number until the 30k mark, and if you're feeling really good and you're saying, hey, Paladino, your number is a little bit low, then you can you can start venturing above that power target. Um, so I do that with a lot of uh, the runners I coach is I'll give them a target for the first half or the, you know, the up to 30K in a marathon and say, okay, if you're feeling really good, then let's move the target uh, a little bit higher. But um, having a power target for most age group runners is that is uh, that's a game changer in terms of actually getting better race results. Uh, I think now for an elite runner, it's a little bit different because elite runner, they're racing other racers and your, your power is going to be more, maybe a little bit more variable or um, there's going to be times when there's a little break and, Someone's making a move and you've got to follow that move or you got to decide not to follow that move. So it's 
Elite racing is more based on racing people. So following a prescribed um, target power um, and they're, you know, elite runner looking at their watch to make sure not usually the case. Now, if I can go one more little tangent further, if you go, if you're trying to break two hours in a marathon, um, like uh, Ilya Kipchoge is about to do, um, you do want to have a, a power target. Um, ideally, you want to have a, um, uh, a, a more of a, a steady state. You're going to, you don't want to overdo it early on and burn up too much glycogen. You want to have a steady state power target that you, you can, that will bring you to that sub two hour marathon. So in a time trial or a world record attempts where it's getting paced, um, you want that steady state. And then it becomes a little bit more applicable to the elite runner, but uh, not in say championship races, like what's going on in world championships right now. You're responding to moves and you can't follow a, 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 an ISO power is what I call ISO power, meaning staying the same the whole way. But for age group runners, uh, the ISO power approach is the way to go. And you've seen, obviously you've had good results with that with your clients. I, well, yeah, I think so. And, uh, you know, I have to go by what, clients and, and athletes that I've worked with report to me in that, you know, they, they feel like, Hey, I, I went out, I held this power. I felt like I was close to my max, but I could hang on and get to the finish line. So, um, I think that, um, it works pretty well. ISO power. I could also look at the contrast. I walked, look at a lot of races where, the plan wasn't executed as well as we'd like, and there is, uh, you know, say a more than two percent variance in uh, power from the first half to the second half, and mm -hmm. the the results just aren't as good. Um, and that works both ways. Uh, you know, people talk about negative splitting, which is you know running faster in the second half of a race. But a negative split of of uh, well, a negative split in pace is a positive split in power. So you're running at a higher power. Right. If your power is more than two percent higher in the second half of a race than it was in the first half, it's probably uh, not going to be as good as if you held the ISO power or held within the one percent of ISO power. Uh, and and the opposite is if someone fades let's say someone goes out and then their second half is one uh two percent lower than the first half that's that's not going to be a good race either um the best racing is plus or minus one percent of of iso power or whatever the um steady state target is okay um i have another question that's in the ballpark here uh how do you reconcile or how, what do you do with your clients in terms of thinking about converting power to speed? Um, well, there's a way of doing it. Uh, there's a, there is a uh, metric that was developed by Andrew Coggin, PhD, uh, called running effectiveness. Running effectiveness is how fast you go for the power that you're exerting. 
it's a speed to power ratio. So um, it, you might have one, two runners that can run 300 watts for 10K, but one runner has a higher running effectiveness than the other. The runner with a higher running effectiveness is going to win um, because they get more speed from their power. Everybody's a little bit different. Um, in terms of how much speed they get from their power. So yeah, you're, you're, um, the first thing I tell an athlete is it's not the same. You're, what power you're going to get from running eight minute pace is different than what, you know, runner, runner B is going to get from running an eight minute pace. It just doesn't, everybody's different. Their, their running effectiveness is different. Um, that said, once I've worked with somebody long enough, um, we don't talk pace. We talk power. You know, your intervals are running by power. Your races are run by power. And um, I, I use this phrase that, you know, run by power and, and pace will happen or speed happens. What the speed you get is a product of the power you produce. So eventually we get to, to just worrying about power and not re really talking about pace. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess what I'm driving at is the improvement of running effectiveness. Uh, to me, at a high level, there's three main things to train, right? There's the ability to generate more power for longer, the uh, improving the conversion of power to speed, i.e. running effectiveness, and or increasing your ability to mentally endure um, your race pace for longer. So I was just driving at what you do to improve running effectiveness. Okay. Running effectiveness? Yeah, well, first of all, I agree with uh, your, your assessments there of how to improve running. You know, you're you're increasing power, uh, power duration, or you're you're increasing running effectiveness, or you're increasing your your ability to execute that, which is the mental side, right? Yep. So so those are I agree with you. Uh, so how do we um, improve running effectiveness? Um, let me preface my answer by saying it is a lot. Uh, the body is more responsive to improving your power duration than it is to improving running effectiveness. Improving running effectiveness uh, doesn't happen as to as uh, a greater extent or as fast as improving power. For example, you might have a three-month training block and your functional threshold power might improve by, let's say, 3%. And your running effectiveness might have improved by half a percent. Um, but it's improvement, which means you are going faster for that for that greater power. You're going even faster than you would have uh, uh, gone three months earlier. So how do we improve running effectiveness? Um, well, we improve it by uh, improving uh, running economy, uh, which is a physiologic uh, metric. We improve it by becoming fitter. We we may improve it by dropping weight sensibly. So we drop 
a couple of pounds while we're training in a three-month block, that might help to improve running effectiveness. But in terms of actual interventions, um, we could do things like uh, plyometrics. We can do weight training. We can do um, hill training, um, things that will improve um, one's uh, leg spring stiffness. Um, we could also improve work on uh, hip mobility um, and, and other mobility to allow us to get uh, more more of our power moving in the horizontal direction so instead of up and down. So as we uh, re reduce vertical oscillation and improve um, uh, uh, stride length naturally, we get more power going horizontally, moving us forward. So there's a lot of different ways. Uh, like I said, training, maybe weight loss, plyometrics, weight training, hill training, uh, mobility work. All of these supplemental things can help running effectiveness. Um, but in the end, running effectiveness is going to move slowly and not a big amount. It's going to move by a small percentage, but slowly. But should we neglect that? No, we want to, we still want to uh, uh, work on that and try to get that, that little extra. Cool. Thanks for that. Um, I guess I'm getting like in kind of deeper in the weeds. So for some for more advanced listeners, but on the running effectiveness, this is something that I look at a lot in my own coaching and training. Um, what I one of the things I've noticed a lot is, you know, certain athletes, their running effectiveness is is definitely better at certain paces and things like that. Yeah. Um, so. D you know, is there, do you ever try to have them sort of like isolate how they feel in a certain pace, like physically and try to apply that, you know, let's say like, let's say at their 105%, they're kind of 5k pace, their running effectiveness is really good, but they're training for the marathon and their running effectiveness is not as good. Is there some kind of you know, mental way or training way to try to get them to feel the way they feel pace-wise at their 5K pace, at their marathon pace or something like that? I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I haven't really uh, – I don't have enough uh, practical experience going – working with, with uh, that side of it. Now, I do know – that um, that if we can work with someone on the form side in terms of uh, uh, staying relaxed under you know what I call living in the pain cave comfortably, just sort of laying back and and hanging out in that pain cave and just relaxing and living there as opposed to fighting it, um, mm. I think that may have some benefit. Um, so there's a, there, there's that teaching part of it, but I say, I think it may have some benefit. I don't, I can't tell you for sure whether it has some benefit. On the other hand, here, here is one thing. If someone's been training more towards 5k and you want to train for a marathon, you look at, I look at their, the ratio of, of 
what their running effectiveness is for two hours versus running effectiveness for the one hour maximum, right? And so we, we look at that ratio and um, we want that ratio to grow. So let's say that the ratio is 90%. Um, we we want to grow it and maybe get it to 97%, uh, meaning that the two the running effectiveness for running two hours maximum is only 90%, is only declined 3%, 97%, only declined 3% versus what they were getting when they're running an hour maximum. Um, that's, that's what I call uh, uh, stamina, running effectiveness stamina, looking at uh, the ability to keep that running effectiveness at a decent level longer. Uh, so I talked earlier about various metrics that I like to monitor and track. Well, that's not one that I'm going to track for a 5K runner or even a 10K runner, but I am going to track that for someone's training for a marathon. Uh, so there's an example. So that's basically sort of that's related to fatigue, though, right? Muscular fatigue. Like it, the... I, fatigue resistance. Yeah, I yeah. count stamina is 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 fatigue resistance in my mind, and um, we can do it. We can look at it in both ways. We can look at the the two hour to one hour ratio of power, or two hour to one hour ratio of running effectiveness, because both of those things decline. Your power declines as you go longer, of course. Um, and running effectiveness also declines as you go longer. Um, so we we can track those in marathoners and see if we are uh, getting pr progression in the, the those uh, fatigue-resistant slash stamina metrics. Cool. Um yeah, that's 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 interesting. Um, one other, I guess, I had a question. So, are you one hundred percent stride? You don't use a Garmin like power meter or any other power meters. I I, I uh, coach a runner that that uh, was using stride and Garmin at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, but but uh, so I, I I am familiar with uh, what that looks like and how it responds. Um, but in terms of uh, coaching, uh, the athletes that I coach currently are all using are all Stride users. Okay, so what are your thoughts on like Stride three, like with the wind? Stride Stride three uh, is allows uh, it it, it uh, gives wind detection, so it allows the incorporation of uh, detecting wind in uh, uh, deriving the power number. Uh, that it's reporting to you, um, meaning that in windy conditions, your power is going to be more true to your effort level. Um, I'm going to give a quick example. The, 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 the version two that I call the non-wind stride, which most people, that's, that's a majority of them out there right now because the, the new stride wind version is, is newer. Um, if you're running into a headwind with a non-wind stride, it's going to under-report your watts. Um, you're, it's under-reporting your effort. So you're, you're cranking into this wind, but it's showing a lower power than what it should. Mm. And the reverse with a tailwind. If you're running with a tailwind with a non-wind version, it's going to over-report the power. With 
The new version, you don't have that misrepresentation. It's going to more truly represent your effort level and your metabolic activity going into a headwind or as you go faster. Uh, so to me, I think it's it's a it's a great I think it's a game changer. It's it's making running power more true to our effort level and our metabolic demand. And that's what we want. So I think it's a game changer. They they, they took a big, big um, uh, step up relative to the competition when they're able to start reporting um, uh, power with that's sensitive to the wind. Do you, and do you have, have you have clients that are using it currently? Yes. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, um, you know, it's, it, I think that they're going to, uh, evolve the firmware just a little bit more over time, but it's, it's pretty darn good. It's, uh, it's pretty interesting. Now that said, for someone who's listening, um, and they have a, a version two, um, you don't have to go out and get a new one. Uh, the version two is pretty good, but if you're living in windy areas or if you're runner, a really fast runner, uh, or doing a lot of high speed stuff, you, you, you might want to have that wind, uh, sensitivity. Um, eventually that's going to be you know, the version two. They'll, they'll stop supporting that some years down the line. Who knows how, how long? I don't know. But, um, uh, Right now, uh, I would definitely recommend it for runners that are running faster or running in, in windier conditions. It's definitely uh, it's definitely worth uh, that step step up. Uh, one additional point on that: um, they're they're reporting uh, power differently. One's including wind, one's not, and so you can't take the data that you have accumulated on version two, the non-wind version, and have it be relative to what you're doing with the new one. You sort of have to start that test, train, test cycle all anew when you start with the new version, with the wind version. Okay, that's good to know. And, and speaking to that, the uh, test, train, test cycle, what are your thoughts on Stride's new auto calculation feature for FTP? I think it's it, I think it's great. Um, I think it it, it is uh, it, the model is good. I've I've seen people online um, wondering whether the model is right or not, and I think the, the I think the Stride folks have done a pretty good job uh, with the model. I think the the main issue with with uh, auto cp is is user error um, people don't understand the how the model works and uh, they they think it's a magic box but they don't re realize that it you know it 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 uh, is only as valid as as the the quality of data and when that when that data was was uh, accumulated etc uh, so I think it's a good model. I think they've made a big step forward in introducing it. I think users have uh, still have a lot of learning to do to uh, understand why why did my why did my CP just go up or why did my CP just drop? 
You know, you see that question a lot. Well, you know, it's because that's the model can only work with the data it's given. So you got to understand what the how the model works. So you don't see it as a replacement for doing the you know, I don't know, the manual test or I'm not sure how you want to phrase it, but the the traditional three minute, nine minute or whatever testing that you've done in the past? Oh, it could be. It could be a replacement. Um, but the model, as I said, you know, understanding the model, the model is going to be more valid if you've got um, maximal or near maximal efforts over a variety of durations. So let's say you need a, a, a three-minute maximal, you need a 15-minute maximal, you need a 40-minute maximal or you know, a 10-minute maximal um, somewhere in a 90-day period. If you have that, you've got a very valid uh, auto CP number. But if you're just training along and you haven't done any maximal efforts, let's say you're in a marathon training block, you're not doing maximal efforts in a marathon training block, you, you may see your CP go down. So if the runner does formal CP testing, the old three-minute, nine-minute, or three-minute, ten-minute, or whatever, or if they're doing racing, like a 5K, 10K racing, or if they occasionally throw in a time trial, like, hey, I'm going to do a mile time trial. You know, it's it's been 90 days or it's been six weeks. I'm going to throw in a mile time trial into my training. Or I'm going to do a 400-meter time trial um, and get a maximal power effort at that duration. If you introduce these things periodically over a 90-day window, your CP is going to be uh, pretty valid. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I've been experimenting with it personally. Um, just to see how it's working. Uh, and I've noticed I'm also in, a, I'm using it on myself personally, not with any coaching clients and I am in a marathon training cycle and I've known it, it's jumps a bit. Uh, right. Right. But I, 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 I'm not freaking out about it. <laughs> no, no. I, I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like getting a brand new stride, a new stride user. You're going to, want to use the stride for you know a couple of weeks to a month or so to just see how it behaves and understand exactly. it well it's the same thing you know users using auto cp you know read up about it learn about it and, and see how it behaves um now i'm going to throw in one additional comment for the runners that i when i have them do a formal cp test mm -hmm. and uh, they do it and then they go and and the next day because it you know it takes the, until the next day is when auto CP updates. The next day, it's it's not unusual for the auto CP number to align fairly well. It's usually within a percent of the what the CP testing result is. So um, it's, it's an example of what I'm saying. If you throw maximal and near maximal uh, efforts in occasionally I'm not asking people to go out every weekend race or go out every weekend do an all-out time trial but occasionally over a 90-day period that that cp is going to be valid good all right all right well thanks for um i know i've been keeping you here for a long time i really appreciate you coming on the podcast this is the 
I wanted to start with you. This is the first podcast. I have a number of them lined up, um, but I wanted to debut with you since the podcast is going to largely revolve around power and 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 running training. So, awesome. well, I'm 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 honored to be selected as that first podcast, and and uh, it's it's been great. Actually, I've done a number of podcasts, and we talk a lot about the technical things and it was sort of cool getting into some of the training side of things here um so um that's that's great and you know maybe we uh come back and talk uh a little bit more about that in the future but it's 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 been great talking with you thank you so much for coming on the podcast and we'll see you next time and thanks to all of you for listening to force divided by mass